Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to or watching Close Reads, a podcast for The Incurable Reader. We are here to discuss the two movie adaptations of Daphne du Maurier's novel, uh, one of which was adapted and directed by the great Alfred Hitchcock and came out in 1940. And then the more recent one came out last year in 2020 and was directed and adapted for Netflix by Ben Wheatley. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about here. And the first question I have for our live studio audience is how many of you have watched both David, of these? David, do, do the listeners who are not on this current Zoom, do they know that we're in a room full of close reads aficionados? Is that a known thing to listeners? It might not be. Know. Well, now, now, now they know. Now it is. Listeners, we're in a room with, what do you think? <laughs> 50 oh gosh yeah 50 you think no it's 33 33 33 33 okay so when david says um you know asks the question it's more than just Heidi and i this time it's right three, it's right Ethers. 33 of our closest friends okay right. so okay people are they're they're typing in the zoom chat box here most have seen um both um and a couple people have seen one or the other hey mary joe tate do you watch both? You're muted, so I can't hear you, you're but muted. I can see that you're talking. Well, I did my homework. I just didn't unmute myself. I watched <laughs> The Hitchcock years ago and loved it. I watched the Netflix last night because I always show up with my homework done. Nice. I liked it better than I expected, but I have some uh, quibbles with it. Okay, fair enough. Okay, how many people, show of hands, liked... Well, Ashley did a whole... Uh, did the Hitchcock today? Elizabeth did the Hitchcock today. So yeah, some some last minute uh, assignment assignment doers there. Okay, how many of you liked the newer one, as Mary Jo said, better than you expected? Okay, so we've got some hands for that. How many of you liked it worse than you expected, less than you expected? In other words, we did not like it. You you did you rephrase that question? I don't know. If there is a way to re say that differently, did you like it less than you thought you would? There we go. From what I can tell here, I don't see any hands up for that one. Well, I'm may maybe Tim actually. <laughs> Jill <laughs> and, I see and Jill. Heidi. Yeah. Okay. How many of you liked? Krista says her expectations were low for both. Okay, Krista, unmute yourself. Why did you have low expectations for both? Well. I had low expectations for the Hitchcock movie because I ha have issue with movies. Like I'm really, you've inspired me, David, to try to see the movie for what it is and not just the book in another form. So I, I thought I could catch on to some of that because I was trying to think about it differently. The Netflix one, cause it was Netflix. So that's why my expectations were low for that. <laughs> okay. Got it. Chris, do you have, you have low expectations for Netflix? Well, I do just because it's new. So maybe I shouldn't say Netflix. Maybe I should say because. Oh, I see. Yeah. 
So I'm going to be a little more yeah. like wondering about that. Yeah. Okay. So Mary Jo says she had very low expectations, very all caps, low expectations. So it wasn't hard to exceed them. So fair enough on that one. Um, okay. Hitchcock then same question. How many of you liked the Hitchcock better than you thought you would? And maybe you just didn't think you'd like it because it's old and black and white or something like that. A few hands there. Heidi raised her hand for that. I can see how this conversation is going to go. Uh, Tim, how did you, where, where did you fall in the Hitchcock uh, continuum for this movie? I saw it maybe two weeks ago and I had higher, I had high hopes for it because it was Hitchcock and I was a little bit disappointed. Not because it was bad. I mean, I thought it was good, but it just a lot of the things that for me make Alfred Hitchcock so wonderful weren't really present in that. I think it wasn't just like a mature work of Hitchcock's. I think it was just kind of like early. He was, you know, figuring things out and he made a really fine movie, but it wasn't Rear Window, which is just one of my, like probably a top 10 movie of all time for me. Like Rear Window, oh my gosh. I had a transcendent right. moment with that movie when I like stayed home from school in high school one day and I just like have never gotten over it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about... Maybe his greatest movies were from that era, but then at the same time, one of my very favorite Hitchcock movies is Foreign Correspondent, which also came out in 1940. And then he had The 39 Steps in 35 and Lady Vanishes in 38. So Hitchcock was pretty well established having made a number of movies that are considered some of the best movies ever made. John says that like you, he thought he would like it less than... He liked it less than he thought he would. Yeah. John, are you able to unmute yourself? Why did you like it? Why, why did you feel that way? I, I would say I very much reflected Tim's comments that it, you know, I expected a lot of it because it's Alfred Hitchcock and thought it was good, but was definitely not blown away by it. Hmm. So Mary Jo, she, you say you've loved the Hitchcock movie so long that you can't remember your expectations. Hmm. So in one sentence... Why do you love the Hitchcock movie that much? It's been so long that I can't remember exactly semicolon. However, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I just remember the the uh, the feel of it, the essence of it. It captured for me the creepiness of the novel uh, pretty well. It doesn't live up to the total standard of the highest of Hitchcock's work, but I liked it. And now mm -hmm. I need to go watch it again because it's been years. A lot mm. of semicolons in that one sentence. It was a downright Faulknerian sentence. Love Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was a compliment, right? Thank you. Okay, so Heidi, do we want to start where you do your Netflix movie take or do we do the Hitchcock movie first? Do we go backwards or do we go start with the old one? I'm going to follow your lead, David. Okay. You're going to have to make that decision. The, the bo both of you feel, feel similarly about the new one. And my takeaway from our text messages is you don't like it. Want to flush it down the toilet. And we need to um, do an intervention and we need to um, examine why you're having such uh, harsh responses to completely meaningless Netflix movies. But it's you right now have the floor. Yes, that's my, my MO in life is <laughs> just to really care about things that don't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, um, right yes. there with you. Yeah, so I thought that it was good thing. Here's the good things. It was beautifully shot, like and Manderly 
made me want to live there. Like the, I thought the sets were beautiful. I thought this visually is the new it was beautiful. Yeah, I loved that. And I liked the casting a lot. Uh, and I thought that Danvers was really good. And I think a lot of our responses, something we should talk about on this podcast is the criteria we are using to judge the films. Right. And I think that's important because mine is always, does the film do justice to the book? So when I was watching Hitchcock, I wasn't thinking at all about Hitchcock's other work. I was thinking about Rebecca, this book, the book, and that's how I was watching it. So that's different, I think, than that's a different criteria than what someone else would use. But in the new one, I thought that it absolutely trivialized the entire conflict of the movie. I hated. This is what makes me want to flush it down the toilet and then resurrect it and burn it and then resurrect it and then throw it away. Like so, um, you just want to pull it. Like you just want to be. Dan- you just want to do a Danvers. Yeah, it is that. This was the moment that it completely derailed for me, and it was when Flavelle is blackmailing Maxim, and he does it. He 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 pays him. Then at the very end. You know, they're like having this passionate moment. And she said it was all worth it for love, right? So in the podcast, I said, here's what would make this book completely unsatisfying to me is if there's absolutely no reckoning at all for what he's done. And that's what the Netflix version did. It trivialized it and it made it a cheap dime store romance novel. Why do you, what do you mean there's no, I mean, how, how does the Hitchcock movie do something different? Uh, What's the different, how are the repercussions different in the movie, in that movie? Well, the Hitchcock movie, and this is where I think it it doesn't live up to my expectations. It, it, there's no there's no consequence at all. It doesn't show what happens after the curtain falls, but it does show Maxim as having the upright moment of refusing the blackmail and entering into the just the the system of justice. And I think that's Maxim's redeeming moment is when he he actually submits to the process, the justice process in the book. Um, so, but, but the failure of the Hitchcock movie was to show what happens after the burning of Manderley, the way that the novel does. And I think there were a couple other failures, but I liked the Hitchcock movie, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Netflix movie, which I hated. <laughs> so, so, okay. I, I don't think I read that the way they interpret that in the Netflix movie the same way, because it's not him that, that pays well, she no, does it. She That's does right. It. She hangs up the phone because he's going to pick it up and call and then she hangs it up. So yeah. So then they become then co-conspirators to try to cover up his crime. And this is supposed to be their big redemptive moment, right? They love each other so much that she's going to help him get away with murder. And that does exactly the thing that I said would make the book derail for me if the book had done that. And the book actually does bring some kind of reckoning of justice to him as I made that I made that argument in the podcasts, which is uh, and and the movie just doesn't do that. It just made it into a steamy romance. Tim, you're nodding. It made it into a steamy romance. It's like the the whole beginning of the movie, like all of the tension in the beginning of the movie, of the beginning of the book, is just gone at the beginning of the movie. You know, like there's this weird dynamic at the beginning of the book. You know, like gosh, he sure seems like he likes her. And I think that she is kind of interested in him. Nothing's ever really expressed toward that. They just kind of were spending time together. And it's this weird, older, younger relationship. And then um, when he like makes the marriage proposal, 
it's just out of left field. It's complete. What? He's like, yeah, you don't even know her. And in the movie, like, I mean, seriously, I signed off when he's like putting sand on her back on the beach. And can I please read your text? Yeah, please. Can I read your text? Please read my text. This is what. This is, I'm going to, this is what Tim said on the Close Reads Tribe text, on the group text. He says, all of the awkwardness of the early relationship is now a golden hour montage of beach massages. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's what happened. I was laughing so hard. So yeah, that, it, it just, it modernized it and it, it, it took away any kind of conflict about justice. It. Yeah, it just, and, and it turned it into the redeeming, the only thing that matters is that they loved each other and now they're going to like conspire together exactly. to get away with murder. And when they, like the way that they make Maxim mysterious, and by the way, um, I love Army Hammer, like as an actor, I think yeah, he's I terrific. And I he's love good. Kristen Scott Thomas. I love Kristen Scott Thomas, um, Mrs. Danvers. But like the way that they made Maxim mysterious is they would kind of like camera pan to him and he'd be like, that's hard for me to talk about. And you're like, come, <laughs> oh, like, wow. This is like, is so piffling. I just wanted out. Piffling is a word I've never heard before. I, look, okay. I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to make it. Is it a real I, word? We're about to find out. So, <laughs> let's find so, out if it's a real word. Piff, yeah, he's, he's Googling piffling now. I am. Okay, so then let's turn to Hitchcock. And I, because what I want to know is, no. how does, we'll get there. How does Hitchcock... How does Hitchcock do anything different? Like, how does it? How is it better in the two areas that you guys are com- complaining about, Tim? For example, the beginning. Way. In every way. Um, I guess that technically is an answer to the question I asked, but it's also not okay, a question. So, to answer to the question I asked. Um, Lawrence Olivier is significantly older than her. The whole relationship for the first 30 minutes of the movie is like, there's all of this tension of like, who is he? And like, what's going on between the two of them? And it's, and it's like, it's awkward, but he's still like a dreamboat, like Army Hammer is, you know, he's got this trim waist and this beautiful little mustache and he's, you know, very cosmopolitan. He doesn't talk like that, but, um, I'm Learning so time. much about you, just a lot. <laughs> yeah, about, about everyone you, who's right? sophisticated in my world has a French accent. Yeah. Has an accent. Yeah, and um, a trim waist. And a trim waist. That's right. <laughs> and, a, and a mustache. Tiny yeah. mustache. <laughs> but I mean, like Jennifer Garner and her tiny mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Callback. It's really so, cute. Okay, go on, go on. And she, for me, in Alias, she does have a lot of costumes. To be fair, in in um. The Netflix film, like I thought the two, like um, Maxim and Plamanda, like they could actually date. They look like they were kind of close enough in age that they could actually date. In the in the Hitchcock one, I'm just like, uh-uh, no, no. It's like, it's just different here. Like, you know, she's kind of like soft of feature and he's all, you know, kind of like chiseled and kind of entering his early middle age. Yeah, I mean, they make Joan, uh, Joan Fontaine... She looks like really young. An 11-year-old. Right. And it adds to like the creepiness of it. Oh, all the creepiness she is has, gone in the Netflix film. She absolutely works as an ingenue, as like an innocent, uh, nervous, awkward, 
practically adolescent, like transitioning from adolescence into young womanhood. Uh, I think that Joan Fontaine was so much more believable in the first part of the film. Oh, they would have uh, never as, let a woman have agency in a movie in 1930, in 1940. Right. Um, and she, but she acted well too. Like she did, like she did that thing with her hands. Like she was always like twisting her mm-hmm, hands and mm-hmm. like she did there, the acting was good. Um, and he was, I mean, Lawrence Olivier, I mean, he's a legend, right? Like he's, his, he acted that part so well. He wasn't just like smoldering. He was like cruel to her mm-hmm. when he was angry with her. He was like, I was like jumping back from the, I, I wanted to like crawl into the screen and stop him from talking to this sweet little girl that way. Right. And, and that's how he's presented in the book. Like his, anger problem was so much more believable in Hitchcock and her like submissiveness and cowering before him was so awkward and difficult to watch. Uh, whereas with, in the Netflix version, it really was just like two hot people like who right. like each other and like have a couple misunderstandings. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know so the interesting thing about the Lawrence Olivier thing is he's younger when he filmed this, than Army Hammer is when he filmed the the version oh, on Netflix. Oh, that's interesting. So it's interesting that for you, Tim, he seems older than the Army well, Hammer version. They slick up the sides of his hair, and he's got like these like he's got gray on his temple. Army Hammer is just his normal brown-headed self. Like they make Lawrence Olivier look older. You so would like you first- you needed Army Hammer to have a little mustache? A mustache. I mean, he needed to have gray. He needed <laughs> to have gray in his hair. He needed or he needed to have like deeper creases in his face, <clears throat> something. There needed to be a bigger gap between them. That, that that's I mean, I that's fair. There just is a bigger gap between even at he was 31, I think, when they filmed the 1940 version, and she was 23. Lily James is was 29 or something and Army Hammer's mm-hmm. 34 or something, mm-hmm. something like that. So that that's true. Although I don't know that I think of Lily James as being someone who looks particularly, you know, aged. <laughs> uh, she yeah, she pulls right. she usually she's, is, she's usually she, playing characters who are like young, young women or older she's teenagers. Good. I think she's she did the best she could with what they gave her. Like she was she she does a good job of going between like kind of the ingenue portrayal and the empowered woman um they just they i i think it was the screenplay not really i was just gonna bring that up when you when you've got great actors you've got great source material you've got a great location and presumably you've got like really quality you know people camera people like, where does the movie go wrong? And it's, for me, it's either the script or the director or both. I just think, like, if, if the director said yes to some of these things that were in the script, it's on him. But how do they end I mean, up a lot in, of it's, in the script? There's a, a lot of that's the Netflix factor. You know, because Netflix is trying to do, you know, they're trying to build, they're trying to get subs. So, right. Yeah. Well, and I think they just wanted it to be a love story. Like they, they, they intentionally took out the complicating factors. Um, it's true, Jill. Like, so yeah, I think that that's, 
that's what they did with the Netflix version. They just, they just wanted to make it a certain, they just wanted to make it a, a love story. And that's, that's what they did. They wanted to take out any question of virtue or character. And they, they did that. So it doesn't um, seem to you but her Heidi, wardrobe's like, great. that you could make this movie with the spookiness. I'll back up. Like love stories are a dime a dozen. You know, there's so many love stories on Netflix and on CBS and on Hulu, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a real opportunity to insert the spooky, to play the spooky, like from the very beginning, play the spooky. It's a love story, but it's set, you know, in a cemetery. If there's so much opportunity there, and that's the reason I get frustrated is because the source material works. Like you don't have to like... Why swerve away if the source material works? We know this. So, okay, let's see. Elizabeth says, did they have to make, make a love story? I mean, it is a love story, right? They just over like emphasizing the love story. How is it not a love story? How is the book not a love story? Well, Elizabeth's comment. Well, I know I'm going to get to the rest of it. I'm going to get to the rest of it in a second, right. but I want to like your act. Isn't the book a love story? You don't think it's a love story? Yes, but the book is a complicated love story. The book is a love story that questions both of them. And Netflix failed to do any of that. But Hitchcock does? It failed to portray. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll get to Hitchcock that's in a minute. Not what, yeah, that's not what we're talking about right now. Because I think Hitchcock failed in a couple of things too. Um, but with Net, what the Netflix version did was say they portrayed her as way too empowered from the very beginning. And... Uh, they portrayed him as um, like smoldering, but not flawed. Those are two different things, right? And then that showed that they had, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Like both of them were so quick to abandon any attempt of goodness in order to stay together, Right. And that's what I meant by it completely derailed for me when with with the blackmail scene that I mean, and that's like a major part of like the reckoning of the story. And it and that that brings the complexity of the story at the end that we all talked about on the podcast. And the reason I think that I, I judge that more harshly than the Hitchcock version is because the Hitchcock version changes the story in the direction of virtue. And the Netflix yeah, the darn story Hayes code. <laughs> changes, changes the direction of the story in favor of depravity. And that is, a, I don't like that. I didn't like that at all. So go, go. Heidi, can you say how the, how you saw the Hitchcock movie changing it toward virtue? Virtue. Yeah. Because he didn't kill her. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but then he still refuses to be blackmailed. Like he becomes then kind of a, a bit of a paragon at the end, which, I mean, I, I think that's a flaw too, but to me, that's a more forgivable flaw mm -hmm. than the flaw of tossing out any kind of character, mm -hmm. uh, any kind of attempt to uphold them as good people and just throw them under the bus. We're willing to blackmail. We're willing to hide our murder. And then we're going to go run away and like make steamy, passionate love all the time. And that's the end of the movie. Heidi, I see at least two children on the screen. Um, yeah. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> the, okay. So the, the, the rest of the, the comment that Elizabeth made, as you said, is, do they have to make it a love story in order to be acceptable in a post Me Too time? Do you think, so do you think that this, the impact of, you know, it's interesting because they had to change the ending in 1940 because of the Hayes Code, 
which had this very restrict, mm. rigid list of rules that every movie had to follow. And there was a committee of people who would watch for like, I think kisses could only last three seconds or something like that. It could only be shot from certain angles and weird things like that. So they had to change it that way. It's not like they wrote it that way. Hitchcock didn't want to tell that version of the story, but he was kind of forced to. Here they switch it more in the other way. And do you think that, to Elizabeth's point, some of that is because of the the Me Too, um, yes, the post Me Too world. I do. I think that, and I think that that's another reason why I reacted pretty strongly to that part is because in order to show a woman in post Me Too, in order to show a woman is being empowered, they have to show her abandoning all attempt to be virtuous for the sake of love, instead of holding to virtue for the sake of love, which is actually that's holding to virtue for the sake of love is what is actually empowering to women. So this, I think, is I, I thought it was frankly degrading to the, not only to the story, but to just the idea that a love story has to show the characters as being willing to abandon all attempt to be good in order to be together. And that that's somehow supposed to show how much they loved each other. That even though I would say that the story itself comes to the wrong conclusion, right? Like, but, but still there is a complexity in Daphne du Maurier's version of the story that does leave us with questions. There's no questions in the Netflix film. It's you get rewarded for blackmailing and lying and covering up murder as long as you're in love. Moral of the story. Okay, let's let's talk about Hitchcock a little bit then. So yeah, where do we? But I really do want to hear your opinion. When do we get to hear your opinion? Because you liked the Netflix version. I did say that. I thought you said that, David. You kind of did say that. in the text, in the group I didn't, text. I didn't, you didn't. I, I, I didn't say I liked David. it. David. I just didn't say anything about sand and massages. <laughs> Shenanigans. Did you like the Netflix <laughs> Hold version? Hold on. Um, okay. It, it's complicated. Let's talk about Hitchcock for a second, and then I'll tell you why. Okay. okay. All right. Hitchcock, what works, what doesn't work? Tim, you go first. What works in the Hitchcock one? I think the kind of gauzy spookiness of Mandalay works really well. The huge house. Um, so you like, do you like that better in Hitchcock than you do the new one? I thought they both did well. I like it better in Hitchcock. And part of, part of that might just be because it's an older film and I kind of attribute this sort of antiquity to it, you know, kind of a spooky antiquity. So that's maybe not a fair assessment. Um. I thought both of the Mrs. Danvers were really good. I thought Mrs. Danvers from Hitchcock was just so freaky, man. She was scary. Yeah, she was. Um, Better than Kristen Scott Thomas? So different. So different. Um, I can't, I don't know the name of the actress in Hitchcock's version that played Miss Danvers, but she was very um, kind of expressionless, which Jude, added Judith to Anderson. Her, Judith Anderson, which to me added to her kind of spooky mystique. She was a little bit robotic. Yeah, I think probably that's an example of that's one thing that that worked in 1940. And there's a, you know, if they did it now, it would feel it would feel weird. Hmm. Like I, I think I think, it, and also you would feel too much like it's the same as the Netflix one. The, the Netflix one is always going to be working in the shadow of the of mm-hmm. the Hitchcock one, so mm-hmm. it has to take all these. It has to diverge, otherwise it's just fan fiction, which yeah. is kind of just fan fiction anyway. But you know, it, it, they have to make they have to create new paths, new ways of doing things. I, I think I actually liked Kristen Scott Thomas better because 
the Hitchcock one made me want to go to sleep, which I don't think was what Daphne du Maurier was, was or hoping. Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Mrs. Danvers. She made uh, me, she reminded me of like an old great aunt who's makes you go up to the attic bedroom and go to sleep. So what, when she was trying to get her to jump out of the window, that was so weird. Like in the Hitchcock version, to your point, David, I agree. I think that you know, was, he was just like, maybe you should go, maybe you should jump, maybe. And I was like, are you going to act? <laughs> so, um, well, to be fair, she, maybe she didn't know her lines that day and they just had them on a piece of paper and she just had to read them. And maybe it was outside the window and it was far away. So, well, I don't know why the I'm making the excuse being that she face. didn't do her job. The blank look on her face throughout the movie was super creepy to Tim's point. But I thought that that part, I was like, is this, I, I just didn't think that was, I didn't like that part. So what, what else do you like? About, Heidi, what else do you like about the Hitchcock movie? I thought that they did the character, or excuse me, the relationship, to, to, Tim said this earlier and I want to echo it. I thought they did the relationship development at the beginning just brilliantly. I thought it was, I mean, nearly perfect. Um, and the introduction to Manderley, the problem with a black and white movie is that you're not going to fall in love with the set the way you do. Mm. And like the gorgeous, like kind of sumptuous color palette that they had in the Netflix. Um, even when they went into Rebecca's room and she's like, isn't this a beautiful room? You're like, nah, not really. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. It was just like gray. So, <laughs> it's um, like I'm reading Beowulf right now. Right. And the, you know, Jennifer uh, in the chat saying the driving scenes. Yeah. I mean, they're just some of it, just because of the limitations of the filmmaking technology at the time, some of it is not quite believable to modern audiences. But yeah. I just thought the acting was so good. Um, the funny thing like is, the, the, Hitchcock in yeah. a car is like one of the things he's known for that made him famous at the time. So um, now it yeah. just looks ridiculous, but. They did a couple of really cool things, like when they're sitting in the library having um, that fight when about their marriage in the Hitchcock version. There's a shat a shadow on the wall from the garden, and it's a it's rhododendrons. I didn't see so, that. So I did not even see yeah, that. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, that's cool. They just tried to bring some of those details in, and if you're paying attention, it. I mean, they. And I could just see him sitting around trying to figure out how to get those red Ronin dinners into the story because it's a black and white film and you, they knew the audience wasn't going to be able to tell what they were. And so they thought of having the shadow, like Rebecca's like red shadow. You know, so I, I just thought all that like really thoughtful filmmaking, they did the best they could with the technology that they had. Um, I did think that the ending... I mean, just the ending of neither one of them is that satisfying because it's so different from the novel for both of them. I just think that the Hitchcock one worked a little bit better. Um, but still, it's, and they should have shown them after Manderley in the Hitchcock version. Why do you, they shouldn't have ended it right there, Dan. Why do you think that neither of these versions just followed closer to the book with the ending? Well, I mean, you said it. Why in the Hitchcock version? Because of the limitations of the time. Like, sure. Yeah. So, um, and without him having murdered her, then what's what do you have points? Yeah. Right. Right. Like, why show them living their kind of empty life in the hotel? <clears throat> that that kind of takes away the whole triumph of the story, which was he was innocent and he's vindicated. Yeah. It, it's. I had, I had a hard time with the what you just said is if he didn't kill her, what's the point? So I, that's, that's what I kept thinking. Why yeah. did he even make this? If he, can't, like, if he can't tell the story, that's kind of a big deal that, totally. that he kills her. 
and then she may be or maybe not haunts him like that if you can't do it why why bother and because that's such a crucial part so it really kind of neuters the the hitchcock movie for Mm -hmm. me the tension of it um tim what were you gonna say a second ago i was just echoing heidi's point which which of her points that um what's the point when if he didn't do it yeah like what's the point yeah david david would you well, come on for the come, love of you, god yeah, tell us some kind of things okay so i think they're both terrible don't be precious um, <laughs> i think don't be precious i think they're both pretty bad and i say that because and i love hitchcock probably my favorite in terms of like it's him and billy wilder for me and the problem is the ending the cho- the choices that they're forced to make mm-hmm. neuter it the problem for me is though that they tried to make the movies. Netflix should never have made this as a movie. It should have been four episodes. Um, they should have done what what BBC did with like Howard's End and stuff. Because the great thing for me about Rebecca is all the stuff in between the stuff that's happening. Like my favorite part of the book is the investigation where it turns into like a detective story almost. Which that if I mean that's kind of on brand for me. I know, but that's such a good scene. All the dialogue, the way they're exploring what could have happened, and then all the tension of her knowing what happened. And I appreciated that the Netflix version tried to get into her head a little bit. It tried to show her being nervous and she kind of like lashes out during the, during the investigation and so forth. True. The, but you need more Favel, you need more Frank. Um, Captain Cyril, yeah. more about the doctor and the tension with Danvers yeah. and all of that. And, Agreed. And if they had made it, you know, like The Hobbit... They make three movies. Everyone looks at it and says, we obviously don't need seven hours of this. You had you stretched it too far. This is an example of where they didn't... They could have done more. And I, they, that, this is one of those ones that the tension is going to come from lingering in the in-between moments. And that's also how you can make her development more of a coming-of-age story. I think the Netflix movie is trying to show her gaining more and more agency... But in, yeah. in this movie, she has to just grab it. And that's because of the pace. It's because of the amount of time they have. I mean, it's all, partly because of the age, because of what people want to see now. But it's also, there's just not enough time for her to age into that, to grow into that, to go through the experiences because there's not time to show enough experiences. The Hitchcock movie, I don't think ever gets around to her feeling like she's changed enough to be satisfying. Like, I think she always is kind of that... I mean, I know, I think other people feel differently about that, but I think Joan Fontaine's character, like her posture doesn't change enough by the end, for example, to feel like she has changed a lot. Now, I think Hitchcock has some interesting flourishes. The beginning reminds me a lot of Citizen Kane, the beginning of Citizen Kane, and they try to do some things with the house, but it's, it feels almost like an homage or fan fiction to Citizen Kane in terms of how they shoot it. And so I, it, it, as Tim said, I don't think it lives up to the best of what Hitchcock was capable of doing. And like I said, the same year that this came out, he also got nominated for an Academy Award for Foreign Correspondent, which is a World War II spy story, which has a ton of subtlety. And he manages to um, main, he manages to not have so much story that that subtlety is eliminated. And I think both of them kind of just ignore a lot of the subtlety in the story. Um, and it, yeah, what do you guys think of... Elizabeth points out Hitchcock left out the scene with the grandmother. What do you think of Hitchcock's choice in doing that? Tim, what do you think? 
as a storyteller yourself. I'm sorry. The scene with the grandmother. Why am I blanking when on this? the grandmother says, where's Rebecca? Why isn't Rebecca here? Gets confused. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh. Which the Netflix one does show. And that was a pretty good scene. They, I think the Netflix one did a pretty good job with the family dynamics, Maxim's family. But anyway, Tim, what did you think about well, the leaving out the grandmother? Yeah, we need more of the sister, though. The fact that I couldn't remember the grandmother's scene is probably evidence that I think it could be that it was okay to leave it on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Maybe that's unfair, you know. But yeah, I, that was not a memorable scene for me from the book. I remember it now, but I had to be prompted. Krista just posted in the chat Netflix let her show her experience by letting her save Max to the detriment of Max's character and the integrity of the story. I think that's Agreed. what they're doing. They're trying well to show said. that she is evolving and growing whereas at the beginning of the movie she's not capable of taking that kind of action she eventually has to you know i think they use her fear in the middle the middle act as a, her she has to overcome her fear to grow whereas that's not really it's not really about her being freaked out and then overcoming being freaked out I think that's what mm-hmm. the Netflix one is trying to show. So right. Marsha says that there's a 1997 TV miniseries with Charles Dance as Maxim. Ooh, Charles Dance. I need to watch that. Amelia Fox as Mrs. DeWinter and Diana Riga as Mrs. Danvers. I thought it was, she, she says she thought it was well done, but she hasn't watched Marcia, it. Marsha, who made it? Was it an American, like a major TV network in the States? Was it British? We're all watching the chat box, Marsha. <laughs> Masterpiece Theater. Masterpiece, Masterpiece Theater. theater. Huh. BBC version is a miniseries. So um, should we just stop this and all just like do a screencast of watching all the episodes of the miniseries and then come back at like two in the morning? I think so. Yeah. That's the solution. Yeah, I think we should. Everyone's willing to stay up for that, right? Um, oh, it's on Amazon Prime. So it'd be easy. We just pull up Amazon Prime, except that I'll never publicly tell anyone to use Amazon why doesn't anyone have a British accent in the Hitchcock version? That's a great question. Which is weird. Doesn't Olivier a little bit? Well, Olivier is like, doesn't, isn't he famous for toning down his accent? Except in Shakespeare. Wasn't that like a thing he did? Cause this was one of his first Hollywood movies. And I think that, but I mean, you, the, so Hitchcock is weird with accents. He, he has like these, these neutral accents. So, you know, in, um, um, what's the, um, Cary Grant North by Northwest. Have you ever watched that and thought about Cary Grant's accent in that? Oh yes. It's an indecipherable accent. Oh yes. He could be from any one of 17 different countries or been raised by somebody from those countries, you know, and Hitchcock has a way of, he, he just kind of messes with that. And I think he's just trying to make people seem vaguely exotic because there was nothing more interesting to Alfred Hitchcock than someone being vaguely exotic. And by the way, I actually think that's why Lily James was cast in the Netflix one because she would have been exactly the kind of actress that that Hitchcock was obsessed with. Like like a Grace Kelly. Agreed. Like the yes. few that, you know, um, he was obsessed with, you know, blonde actresses. It was, he's famous for mm-hmm. and it was borderline creepy. But she would have fit exactly the uh, category of of uh, actress he was looking for. So David, I just got to interrupt. This is just so like one of these kismet moments. Last Are you looking night, at Jesse's dog? No, I'm not looking at Jesse's dog. Um, <laughs> last night, my mom and dad, my dad is really sick and my mom and I are looking after him. And 
a Cary Grant movie comes on, dad is mm-hmm. watching like, um, what's Do you remember which Turner, one? Turner classic films. If I thought about it, maybe I could, uh, not, not one of the, like the, you know, huge movies that he's in, but I say to mom, I said, you know, Cary Grant has this really strange accent and I can never tell exactly where it is. You know, like, is it, is it something that's affected is like, cause I thought he was an American and mom and I are having this conversation and my dad is, you know, he's pretty out of it, but every once in a while he'll kind of like jump mm. in mm. and he'll bring some knowledge and I'll be like, dad, just a second ago, like, we, you were, we were having trouble getting soup in you. And now he said, he said, Cary Grant lived in Great Britain until he was nine. And I was like, Wow. <laughs> Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. He just knew that. He just knew it. Wikipedia says the the second, the beginning of the second sentence of his bio, Cary Grant's, not your dad's, is known for his transatlantic accent. That's a great descriptor. And And his debonair demeanor, which I feel like debonair demeanor and lighthearted approach to acting also would fall on your dad's. Your dad's yes, I think it would. His Wikipedia. <laughs> my dad's lighthearted approach to acting. <laughs> Everyone sense, of, about his my sense dad. of comic timing. Well, we. That, where do we think? That's where you got your lighthearted right, approach right, to acting. Right. Yeah, I lost track of what I was going to ask you next. Cary Grant. Looking up. There's a new uh, biography uh, of Cary Grant out, by the way. Somebody needs to ask a question so that we can get. So I can I, forget, okay, what I was, forget what I, I was going to say. I have a question. Okay, go ahead. I do have a question. I want to take this up. This is usually a David Kern question, but I'm going to. I, I'm learning. I'm growing as a human being as a result of this podcast. It's my ability to ask different kinds of questions. So what criteria are you guys using for these movies? Because mine great is very question, simple. Heidi. It is how... Thank you so much. I like, See yes. what I did. It, for mine... I do. Yeah. Um, mine is... Like in a minute, you're going to be asking me about my feelings. So, um, my, mine is how close is the movie to the book? And does it capture the soul or the heart of the book? And that's like, and then if something else derails, but those are two or stands two out to me. Completely different things. Say what you just said again. You mean close to? You yeah, said, you're right. They are two. How do they? How close are to the book? And how, how much, close to the book? Yeah. And then secondly, I said how close to the soul or the yeah. heart of the book. And you're right. Those are two different things. But both of those would be a criteria that I would use to judge a movie, and not so much other kind of filmy kind of things. So you, David, to me, seem like you're going to be looking at the movies as movies, like using a different kind of criteria. And that, Tim, that's what you said earlier. Like it doesn't measure up to what I would expect of Hitchcock, which is totally true. Like Rear Window is a hundred times better Mm -hmm. movie, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't even think of that while I was watching the film. I wasn't even thinking about, is this a good Hitchcock movie? I was just thinking, is this a good version of Rebecca? Mm -hmm. Um, Kelly wrote, Heidi, I think a movie can deviate from the book and still be a faithful representation. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah, I agree yeah. too. And Kristen used the word essence and that's the soul or I use the word soul. I think I word the word essence. That's the word that I use a lot when mm-hmm. I think about adaptations. Cause I, I honestly couldn't hardly care less if a movie is sticking to the book. Like it's just not interesting that interesting to me because if i wanted that i would just read the book so what i we're trying to ha- i want to have an interpretation of it a different experience now i'm not common in that way <laughs> most people would want to you feel like you're a book that you love is being ruined um 
so I, I get that. So for me, the, the essence of the soul thing is definitely a big part of it. And, and yeah, I'm going to want to, I'm going to watch it from a, I mean, I, I went to film school, so I spent a lot of time just watching scenes broken down many different ways. And, and like, you can't kind of, you kind of don't turn that off and it's kind of irritating. So yeah, I, I, I can forgive a lot of stuff if a scene's well shot, but I, I can't for, I usually can't forgive if it's poorly written. And I don't think that the Netflix one is well written. Um, I think it's, I, th- I think that it doesn't manage to create enough threads that, that are sustained throughout that you latch onto. And that's where you can get the essence. So there's a spirit that you can get in a tone. And then there's also like threads that are from the book that, that are consistent with the essence of a book. And it's, you know, the through line that you latch onto that says, this is the essence of the book that I read. So you can change big plot points. You can remove characters, add characters. You can do what they did in the two towers and have Aragorn go on a separate adventure with wargs or whatever. And it doesn't necessarily it totally worked. eliminate, it totally worked. change the yes. essence. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. How about poorly acted? Yeah. Sarah asks, how about poorly acted? But the ellipsis at the beginning of that is confusing me. Ellipsis, it looks how like about it's a acted? back to something, yeah. Sarah. And while she's typing, hopefully, were you going to jump in there, Tim? Well, I, did you guys see the newest movie version of, I'm going to make some enemies here, Anna Karenina starring Kira Knightley? Joe Wright's version. Yeah. Joe Wright, is that the director? Yeah, yeah. I saw that thing on a plane and I was prepared to just, you know, be a total elitist about it. Oh, how dare they make a two hour mm-hmm. movie out of And I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Like absolutely brilliantly fabulous. And one of the things that they, I think, made it so successful is they made no attempt to capture all of like the best scenes of the book. All that they Russian farming stuff. Take the essence, uh, they just tried to take the essence of the book and kind of cast it in this different manner. And I thought it was a complete success. So you know who adapted that for the screen? For the screen yes, right? I do. Tom Stoppard. Yeah, well, I mean, so there's a, there's a, he's one of the greatest, is he alive still, right? One of the greatest living he playwrights. He is still alive, yeah. And um, he wrote, didn't he write Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Yeah. Like a bunch yeah. of stuff that's... You, you Jumpers. Probably, yeah. Yeah. He wrote Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> Hmm. I, I actually love that movie. And, you know, I'm not, of course, I, I think a lot of people were predisposed to dislike that movie because he did Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 version, which a lot of people don't like because they can, comp- at least in comparison to the British version. And I, it, that's another example where I think it, it, so much gets left out of that Pride and Prejudice version. And they have to, you have to create a cohesive experience for people who have never read the book, especially mm-hmm. in a time when not that many people read and, or compared to, you know, even in the early nineties when the, the BBC Pride and Prejudice came out, Mary. So the, Elizabeth says, I think the 2000 version is great. 2005 version is great. Captures Austin's humor so well. And then like a second later, Mary Jo's comment came up and said, mention of the 2005 P and P is triggering me. <laughs> and then Amber says, we know Mary Jo. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say maybe we should uh, do an episode on those one day, but maybe we shouldn't. I wouldn't want... David's even. always saying we need more controversy yeah. on the show. So this is working. Yeah. So This is what we need to do. So Lindsay says, for me, when I'm watching a movie that is based on a book, it's always a disappointment. I'm always sad about something added or left out. It's extremely difficult and usually maddening. 
However, with Rebecca, I loved the movie so much. It was so fun. And I just fell in love with everything about it that I was just excited to see what Hitchcock Netflix did with it. Sorry. So you probably meant the book there. Yeah. Yeah. I was fully prepared to be just along for the ride, which is why I think I ended up liking both for the most part. Yeah. Okay. She says, Lindsay, I think that that is a lesson to all of us in lowering our expectations. And that's kind of like the moral that we're (laughs) taking away. Right. Isn't that what you want to, you're wanting us to learn? Always got to be immoral, you know? (laughs) I do think that one of the things I liked about Rebecca and liked about the conversation with this whole Close Reads community was that it was lighthearted. Like it was was fun to read a book that didn't have such like this serious pressing cultural or spiritual commentary. It was just like a a story that's likable. Um, I don't know. It felt pretty serious to me. People love, um, people love this book. I liked that. I really liked that about it. And to... Uh, to Lindsay's point, you know, that does come through, I think, in the movies for sure. So what one of the things I'd love to have to, to get at then is this notion of the essence of the soul, because we've talked about some of the changes. So what is the the essence of the book that has to be captured in an adaptation for you to like it? So and then and then obviously the Hitchcock one for you is closer to that essence than, than the Netflix one. But what would someone have, so what would they have, to, someone had to have to do, like say the three of us are adapting it, how into a screenplay, what is the, what is the, what is the thing that we're having to say, this is the through line, this is the core essence or soul that is most important in, in our work as we're writing this adaptation over the next 72 months. I just gave us a deadline. On, for no reason wow. at all. It's pretty oh, far out though. So we definitely have like two movie. years to, you know. <laughs> to... That's right. Heidi, what's, just, what's the, what is it, Heidi? I, it's, it's two things. One is I do think it needs to be as close. I think in deviating from the book, you have to have a reason that serves the, the film medium. So, we, we've been talking about that on, for, I mean, everybody here is Patreon supporters. We've been talking about that on the Patreon episodes for The Lord of the Rings. As we've, been, we've had several conversations about the movies and changes that they've made, that Peter Jackson made in the films. Uh, and we've talked about whether they worked or not, right? And there's many, many deviations from the Uh, from the books in the films. Uh, And some of them really work well because film is a different medium than than the written form. Like it's different. Um, And because of that, it requires, in order to keep to the soul of the story or the heart of the story, the essence of the story, you have to make some changes sometimes. For example, with the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings films, the cast of characters is much smaller in the films than there are in the books. And that actually works, I think, because you lose track of people in a film and you like being able to follow a character in a film, right? And see them in different contexts. And so Peter Jackson had uh, like Elrond do everything that multiple elves did in the story. And I just think that works better, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Because you're like, oh, there's that elf guy again. I know him. Right. And yes. So, and I just think that works. He gets a lot done. Yeah. But so, but I do think to make a good adaptation in order to deviate from the book, you can't just do it arbitrarily because you think it's cooler. You have to do it for a reason that serves the story and the medium of film. 
To your point about Anna Karenina, I do think that that version, I fully expected to hate that mm-hmm. version. And I found myself liking it in spite of myself because I thought this serves the story. This examines the conflict of adultery and what it creates in the soul and in society. And there is probably no way to make a movie without cutting a huge chunk. And so they did a pretty good job figuring out what to keep and what to let go. And and so that's one it's if you deviate from the story it has to have a reason and then two you have to maintain the conflicts of the book that are examined in the book and you have to you have to keep to that and i think both to your point david about the hitchcock like i think both versions did not do that they did not stick to the to the 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 conflicts about justice and human love that are brought up by the novel. And because of that, they just, they don't, they didn't really get to the heart of the story. Hmm. What's, what's hard about trying to say what is um, the heart of the story or the essence of the story is that it's really tempting to just give a short plot outline, Yeah, which is not really what the heart of a story is, you know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I agree. So I think that like the way that theme shows up in movies and in plays is through uh, a conflict of values. And so maybe if we're going to talk about what the essence of Rebecca is, what's the conflict of values to me is the big question. Like Mm -hmm. what are the things that are at odds with each other? It's not um, just... Well, I'll just leave it at that. I think that's like where the the beginning of the discussion about the essence of a film, the essence of a book. I actually think it would be helpful if you did go deeper on that. So what do you see as the conflict of values in the book? And then where is that being deviated or kept consistent in the movies? And I hate to, I mean, you, you brought this upon yourself to be fair, but I hate to, you know. Ask you to I'm going to try to stumble around and try to find it. So I think the conflict of values um, is something like when innocence, uh, Plamanda, meets um, a grave, Go ahead and a be grave wrong. Here. Experience. Okay. What's the, what did you say? <laughs> so I'd be Blakey in here. Songs of innocence, songs of experience. Yeah. I think when innocence meets um, the kind of after effects of a grave wrong, and I'm thinking about the murder, the interchange of those values produces, in a strange way, I'm going to say that the book is the maturation of the protagonist. I mean, I, I, that's right. I'm kind of like teasing it out here, but that, I think it would be something right. like that. Yeah, Whereas, is, does that show up in Netflix or in Hitchcock? Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, is she forced as an innocent, which we could use that in two different ways, to reckon with the impact of the sins that have been haunting the house that she lived in? Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the big things that's in that the book is about. Mm-hmm. I. Would you agree? Is that mm-hmm. overstating Agreed. it? And yeah, I don't know that in either case, in either example, the the movies focus enough on that. I think another another part of the essence is tone. Like mood is mm-hmm. another way of putting that in a movie. Mood is the mood 
Mm. Mood is the word that's used in movies more often than tone. We use tone a little more for books. And especially in a Gothic novel, that mood is pretty crucial. I think they both sort of tried to get there, but there wasn't enough hauntedness and that Mm. they needed more time. Like you need to feel like you're walking they didn't give hardly they, they tried with the dreams and some of the stuff like that in the Netflix one. I think they tried. I think they made a more valiant effort to make it creepy. But although they, I don't know, Hitchcock did what he could for the 1940. <laughs> um, so I take that back, but you know, they, they didn't have enough time to really give up to really like, they just told us basically that it was creepy. They didn't give us enough time to be creeped out. Right. Well, he could have done better with that. Like he could have had a lot more scenes of her walking alone down, you know, down the corridors, wondering if Rebecca's like behind the curtains or something like that. Like they, but to your point, I just don't think they had enough time. You actually have to cover a lot of ground. David said something that effect earlier. Like if you, if you do break it up and I think this is kind of addressing what Kristen Duckworth asked earlier, like how do you show the interiority of the book, which is so crucial to the book. Yeah. Yeah. It question. seems like it just takes, you got to be like silence and time is a lot of it. Yeah. Let's let yeah. the camera explore this actress's face. Face. Yeah. When she doesn't have any lines, but we can kind of assume, we can kind of. This is why Terrence Malick is, is so important as a filmmaker and also so annoying for a lot of right. people is because what he's doing when uh, Pocahontas in the new world is looking at the trees is entering into her interiority. It's not just that we as the audience, like the movie, the camera's not just looking at trees because they're beautiful. It's an expression of someone's interiority. And people don't like that because it takes a long time and it feels slow. And sometimes his movies dwell on that. You know, even I would say they dwell on that too long and I love his movies. But that's, if you don't, if you don't, you, you are asking a lot of an audience in a movie to spend time on interiority. Right, and, it, and, I, and it's I not totally practical agree. from a writing perspective either, because, like, if you if you're writing a movie script, what is it, Tim? Like, every page is about one point zero eight minutes of screen time, mm-hmm. and so you say you're writing a hundred and twenty page script. You don't uh, you don't you can't on a movie script page. There's just not a lot of space to fill, and that screen time only goes down when you're not writing dialogue. So when you're trying to ex- express something that's going to be in the interiority, like you just audiences just aren't going to be there for it. Whereas in a book, you are asking for interiority as an audience, you know, and it's just so hard to capture that. I think that's why a lot of movies just don't try. Um, if you were, point, were, point of view is not enough. Marshall McLuhan, that media theorist from the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s, he shows up briefly in Annie Hall. There's that great scene. I'm talking about a Woody Allen movie, which is like in really bad favor right now, I know. But nevertheless, the scene's great. And like Woody Allen gets in an argument waiting in the movie line. He's listening to this Columbia professor talk about Marshall McLuhan. Da, da, da. And Woody Allen says, this guy doesn't understand Marshall McLuhan at all. And the guy says, I do understand Marshall McLuhan. And then Woody Allen pulls Marshall McLuhan like from off screen and Marshall McLuhan says, yeah, actually Woody Allen is right and you're wrong. And Woody Allen's like, don't you wish that actually happened in real life? It's a great scene. But Marshall McLuhan has this idea that different media have different temperatures. And if I recall correctly, book reading is a hot medium, which sounds a little bit, um, doesn't sound right. But what he means is what it 
demands of the participant, it requires a lot. It requires heat. And television and movies are a cool medium because they do a lot of the work for a viewer. You know, like the imagination, it's not you turn your imagination off, but for the most part, you're a, you passively engage. And Terrence Malick, to your point, David, is one of those few filmmakers that actually makes the medium of movies kind of warm. You have to really engage. And I think that's part of the reason why I was so frustrated at the movie renditions of Rebecca, especially Netflix, is that there, there is such an opportunity, it'd have to be a really good filmmaker, to like invite the reader, excuse me, invite the viewer to like really participate with the interiority of Plamanda. But it's just, Netflix just wastes it. I think Hitchcock kind of makes a good attempt, but if they'd given him another 30 minutes, maybe he could have done more with it. I mean, one of the well, sh- Go ahead, Heidi. So a movie that does this really well, really, really well is Remains of the Day. Yes. Oh um, my gosh, yes. That is, that movie, like that film like nailed it. And they they changed several things in that, in in the film version. But everything they changed served the story. It it deepens the characterization. And then they, I mean, they just had, they gave, they essentially hired like two of the best actors in the world and just gave them their head, right? Like just go out there and show on your face. Because that's an very interior book. So it's definitely possible, right? The way that those, the way that they play both of them were just they were perfect. They were perfect. That's almost a perfect but, movie. But you'll note that not a lot and happens it's very in the book. Interior. True, but it totally works on screen. They added a couple things, um, but it works on screen. To Jennifer's question about how do you display interiority, I think what Tim said is really apt, right? Silence and time and great actors. Yeah, I mean. And close-up <clears throat> shots on their faces when interesting things are happening that's causing, you know, that, and Remains of the Day to me is like the perfect example of that succeeding. And you could have done that with Rebecca. They could have. They just, I don't know if they didn't have enough time or they didn't, they, both of them made it too simple, I think. The, I mean, voiceover is the most obvious example of how you practically do that. And that Malik uses voiceover and, and, you know, lots of long takes of people walking and I like days of heaven. If you've ever seen that, have you ever seen days of heaven? Either of you? Mm. Um, some days it's got a young woman who's yeah, doing the voice. She's the narrator. Yeah. yeah. And, and they managed to get a lot of interiority that way um, because it captures, she's a very awkward character and she's young. And so it allows us to see, beyond just their interactions with other characters, um, which can help make it more satisfying. But again, it like, it's kind of not a lot plot wise really happens. Um, but it's so that, great. Oh that my gosh, oh, the days of heaven. One of my, one of my favorite movies. If we ever get around to actually getting this movie podcast out, it might be episode one. Um, and then you also have nonverbal acting. And I mean, that's where yeah, in a movie right. this you can do nonverbal acting in a way that you can't even necessarily pull off on the stage because of being able to see 
the face is uh, more, you can't see a stage actor's face very clearly. Um, Tim, do you want to offer any final thoughts on these movies or movie making in general? Do you want to um, potentially reveal that you maybe you are working on a screenplay for no. this movie that's going to come out in 72 <laughs> no, months? I'm not. No, I'm not. The, a stage I, version? A one-man play? I'm I'm more interested in like the book. I just think the book was just so good. It was such But a would you consider doing a one-man play where you play all the characters? No, I would not. Because I'd really like that. to know your Tim McIntosh as Plamanda De Winter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tim McIntosh as Maxim De Winter. Also as Mrs. Danvers. Also as Maxim. Also as the what was the dog's name? I forgot the dog. <laughs> Jasper. 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 To be fair, it would be very easy to play Rebecca. You could definitely do that. I could. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I could play Rebecca for sure. Thanks for the encouragement, anyway, Krista. <laughs> any any uh, uh, any final thoughts from you? None for me. Was that for Heidi or was that for me? It was for you. Okay. No, I have no more no more thoughts. Uh, Heidi, do you, you have any thoughts? thoughts on Tim doing a one-man show? I mean, I'm all for it. I'm a thousand percent on board with this. I love this idea. Tim, Elizabeth says that Tim should forget to, to read the crucial chapter more frequently. So, you know, <laughs> we talked about this off the air Elizabeth, that like if we do another suspense thriller, if there's a moment that there's a revelation, I think it's I think it would be great to like you know have one of the readers not read that chapter. It'd be funny if we did that, even if it wasn't a suspense thriller. It's just like an important chapter where some emotion, something emotional, is revealed, and then we can just watch that person weep and break down on yeah on the show too. That could work yeah. too. We could do like, that for like the end of Hannah Coulter or something. Just like yeah. you experience that on, live on the air and then try to express yourself afterwards. I'm definitely a book crier. So this would work. If you, none of y'all have read it, how did you know to break it right there at that chapter? I think we've got to have a couple of people that have read it and one person who's kind of innocent or, you know, one person who's read it and the other two are innocent. Yeah. Just like we did on Rebecca. Yeah. That's a great system. Yeah. Mary Jo asks if any of us have not read Jane Eyre, which we're talking about right now. And I think, We've all read Jane Eyre. Tim, you're not on it. I, how you like? You, have you read Jane Eyre? I have. Yeah, it's been a while though, right? It's been a long while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Heidi and I have you Heidi's read, read the it. Middle of it. Twenty. What'd you say? Like twenty times? I don't know. A lot of times. You, There's no surprises in it. This reminds me, lots Tim. Of, if you need to go, just depart. I need to go or, check in on my dad. I hate to say it. I really hate to say it, but I okay. need to do that. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. It's really yeah. nice to see everybody. Thank you for doing it's great. this. Heidi, you want to stay on for a bit? Yeah. Okay. Tim, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, Tim is gone. I have asked Heidi for final thoughts. She has said that she has none. none. So, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Heidi, have you seen the Jane Eyre? movie that came out in 2011 yeah i've seen all the jane Eyre. i like I, jane Eyre. jane Eyre translates well to film i think i'd love to know okay in the chat box how many of you liked the 2011 film with maya wasikowska michael fassbender i really liked and it directed by I love carrie michael fukunaga mm-hmm. so I was thinking, I could not stop thinking that I would love to see Carrie Fukunaga make Rebecca because he gets the gothic yeah. stuff. And I mean, he, he's done, um, 
he's doing the new James Bond movie. He's done Jane Eyre. He did the seri- the HBO series True Detective. Um, he knows all the, he understands that gothic, that dark element uh, to it. I actually have not seen the Ruth Wilson Jane Eyre. Um, Good. Which do you like better? I think I probably like, I just like Michael Fassbender. So I, I was so, I just really loved that version of it, but the Ruth Wilson one's really good too. They're both, it's, I just think it's a story that if you, if you're true to the story, it translates really, really, really well to film. So I think it's, it's one of those, it's hard, it's hard to ruin because so many of the big plot points like have to be in the movie. So but yeah yeah it ties together so well (laughs) okay oh the ruth wilson one's even earlier okay i was thinking it was later um okay in the chat box how many of you like what's a movie that is you what's your favorite and least favorite adaptations of movies to screen like do you know right away i like this one i hate this one i actually started working on a literary bracket that was the, it was just movie adaptations of books pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. I may yet one day do that. So while, while we're getting responses in, can I tell you mine and while well, and yeah. you can watch yeah. the chat box. Yeah. So I'm going to pick two movies I love, or excuse me, two books I love and one movie adaptation I dislike and think doesn't work. And one I love. So Brideshead Revisited <laughs> is my favorite novel. Got a thumbs down for the Hobbit. <laughs> Um, yeah. Brideshead Revisited is my favorite novel in the world. I absolutely love the miniseries. I think it's perfect. They did a fabulous job on that. Um, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I love the Harry Potter books. I think that the first movie of Harry Potter doesn't work at all. And you know why I think it doesn't work is because it's too close to the book. Mm. Like it's, it's follows the book so perfectly that it just gets boring like it just doesn't work as a film adaptation they should have cut some things they should have changed some things it's just it's too true to the book it didn't work hmm. so Chris okay said, well let's sum it so up I, I, I actually so have you seen the movie adaptation of Brad's Head uh, yeah it's terrible so I don't think it's terrible I just think it leaves out the most important scene in the book otherwise I think it's really good <laughs> the most important scene in the book Go the on. Julia scene like it, yeah. it basically yeah. butchers the most important scene mm-hmm. in the book, but for what it's trying to do, like it's clearly trying to do something different. And I think it's pretty yes. good. You know who loves that movie? I, I believe is Josh Gibbs. Oh, he has a long I'll take on that. And never that. let me go. I did not like it at all. Um, my dad hates it. So you can, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think it was Kristen said, made a great point here. Oh man. You guys are good. Okay. Kristen says the princess bride is one of the few I'd say the movie is better than the book. Love the movie. The book is great, but the Agree. movie is perfection. So same writer though, William Goldman adapted his own movie, own book to the screen, which is maybe he managed to capture the essence of it in a way that, uh, not a lot of people can do. Um, Lord of the Rings is the best. The Hobbit is the worst. Like the movie version of the help hunger games was better as a movie. Yes, agree. Totally agree. Thousand percent agree on the Hunger Games thing. A Wrinkle in Time with Oprah was disappointing. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Amber, I like most adaptations because I enjoy finding things that are different. Amber, I'm actually mostly in agreement with that. I, it takes a lot for me. Yeah. To, um, Elizabeth, Love a River runs through it. That's true. Holes was good. Um, 
Is Halls the one with uh, Shia LaBeouf from like 2003 or something? I haven't seen the movie. I've only read the book. Oh, Dawn Treader was awful. You know what I think might be the worst of all time was that uh, Prince Caspian adaptation. That was bad too. Because it it takes all the medieval stuff and just Throws neuters it, it. And that's kind of the whole point of that book, which is not one of the mm-hmm. more... I, I mean, I don't think it's one of the better... I think it's probably my least favorite book in that series, which, I mean, again... Like out it's of everybody's yeah, least out of that, yeah. It's like it's a pretty high bar. Um, Voyage of the Dawn Trader was terrible. I assume we're talking about the newer ones. Um, you know, okay. Starship Troopers is a book. Is that true? I is that that, that's a that's book? a funny that's a good take. Starship Troopers was a horrible movie, but a good book. I've <laughs> never heard anyone say that before. I like that. Um, so. Have you ever read, heard of Ron Hansen's book, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert, Coward Robert Ford? Uh, yeah, I've read that. Okay. So Ron I Hansen, love Ron great, Hansen. Yeah, great Catholic novel. Yeah, I love so him. So have you watched the movie? No, but I know you love it. I I'm do, ashamed I of myself. I do love it. And the thing about it is, there's two things that actually make it work. It's long and slow and has voiceover. And oh. maybe that's... It's and it's a Pitt, super right? interior... Yeah, but he's not the narrator. It's Robert... It's um, Casey Affleck playing Casey the, coward, Affleck. the coward Robert Ford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure. it's slow, but it's still it's got so much tension, and the tension is because of the slow build. Um, hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of scenes in I that like movie that are among my movies. favorite. I don't need a lot. Like, I'm not that needy when it comes to plot points in movies. I'd rather watch a long <laughs> unfolding. So, yeah, I bet I'll like it. I'll watch it. Elizabeth threw a pillow at Charlotte's Web book. with Julia Roberts. Throwing a pillow at Charlotte's web is cruel because then the web is gone. <laughs> and then there were non-miniseries. I've was never pretty good. seen that. Uh, I watched... There's a lot yeah. of good Agatha Christie well, and again, adaptations. Series. Yeah. The, the, um, what was the one that they did recently with um, John Malkovich where he plays Poirot? Is it the ABC... I never watched it. I I can't. ABC yeah, I never watched that. Okay. I watched a little bit and then I fell asleep. And that I never went back to, to it. Me, John Malkovich. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a I different like take him, on. But that Poirot. felt weird as Poirot. I'm so nervous about Death on the Nile because I love that book so me much. Too. I love and that book. It too. needs to be longer. Watership Down. That Watership Down. It, that was a good series. Series are better, right? I don't know if I've seen that. Watership Down. The yeah. um, animated. No, it's I don't know good. I've never actually seen that. I love Watership Down. Watership Down is controversial. Some people really hate that book. I'm a, I, I love that book. So I, and I thought that the, the miniseries did a really good job with it. It's Netflix. Okay. Now here's my next question. You're a screenwriter or a director or whatever you have, or you're just a producer and you have power. What book that has never been made into a miniseries that is up to your standards are you, are you in charge of adapting? What are you spearheading? What are you jumping in? Jumping in? You can give a couple. But, um, uh, and Jennifer says the BBC adaptations of Dickens' Bleak House is good. I haven't seen that. So, the, the, I, I, Heidi, what, what, I mean, would, would you do like Harry Potter again or something? Uh, I th- Renee says oh, the man. nose. Little Dorrit. So Lisa, are you saying Little Dorrit? needs to be adapted. 
Um, oh, just agreements that Bleak House is good. Okay. So, okay. But Renee, are you saying that, that that's what you would choose to make? Or is there, is there like a movie of the, of the nose? Peace like a rip. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's a little breaking of... up. Huh, that would be bold. Mm. Bold. That's a good off the beaten track one. So right. somebody said, I hope they make a piece like a river one day. That movie has been, I mean, that has been optioned. Um, and I don't know if it's ever going to, you know, officially happen. Uh, but um, I heard that Billy Bob Thornton was attached to it at one point, um, which actually brings me to my answer. Because I, we're going to talk about this in the next book on, on, uh, oh, Miss Bourne will happen. It's been uh, it's been optioned for a long time. Brandon Sanderson's very rich because of that, <laughs> among other reasons. But yeah, that's going to happen at some point. Um, I think he's actually working on it, is my understanding. Um, uh, all the pretty horses. So yeah, all the pretty horses got adapted by mm. Billy Bob Thornton. It's got Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz in it. And it's known as one of the more controversial, controversial Hollywood stories because they made a four-hour movie almost, and the studio um, basically took out half of it and made him release a version that everybody says they want nothing to do with. It apparently the director's cut is so good that Matt Damon mm. says it's the best thing he ever worked on. And what? and they won't release it in part because I th- why because I, th- I want to s- whoever did the music Brian you know maybe um, he is so mad about what they did to it like all people that are involved are so mad about what the studios did that they refuse to ever release their work because the studio butchered it so much and they don't want the studio to make any money on it and everyone's just mad so maybe in you know forever it's kind of like the um. Orson Welles did the Magnificent Ambersons and uh-huh. he got taken away from him and they rewrote like the last half of it. The movie version that's out there is considered a classic, but it's not anywhere near as bleak as Orson Welles version. So that's, and that's in a vault somewhere. And hmm. I don't, it, you know, there's, I, I don't know the whole story of it, but this is a crime. I threw a pillow at all the pretty horses too. Elizabeth is a pillow thrower. I see. She's a pillow thrower. <laughs> if I could make a mini series out of anything, it would, it would be the epics, mm-hmm. like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, right in a row, and it would go so like for violent. years. Yeah, and it would, and it would. I mean, it would be t- those wouldn't be good as movies, right? They would yeah. have to be like a really, really well done mini series. And if that existed, it would be the greatest thing ever made. <laughs> if they were, if they did, if they actually did the real story, and did not politicize it at all, just made the story. It would be amazing. It'd have to be like on HBO or something, and like super rated R and and just so violent. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so Jennifer says that The Muppet Christmas Carol is her favorite adaptation, and I totally agree with that. Have you guys ever seen The Muppet Treasure Island? The greatest. Yes, I have. It's very good, actually. All of those Muppet adaptations are really good, but Muppet Christmas Carol is the best. Michael Singing Michael Caine goes a long way. It's so good. Just in rule of thumb in life, a singing Michael Caine goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, my kids just watched the Treasure <laughs> Island one, and they're actually watching Swiss Family Robinson right now. I mean, not literally right now; it's ten thirty, but they're in the yeah. middle of it. Right, um, which was one of my favorites as a kid. Another one that I would love for someone to do uh, as a miniseries is Little House on the Prairie. Not because I don't like oh, the series, the series with Michael Landon. Um, I think it's perfectly fine, but like someone needs to do one that is a little more of a budget and is a little closer to the book and, you know, can do, can be a little more, I mean, those books are fairly bleak at times and like they need, they need, I think they could get into that a little bit more. Um, and like Laura's whole coming of age story, like if they did that as a multi-series thing, but there's enough content in the books to do. I'd love that one. Um, without adding characters. I mean, I don't care if they add minor characters, but they don't need to give them sure. like a son to make Charles right. happy. <laughs> That was weird. <laughs> right. I mean, I, um, right? Yes, that was like it was. Farmer Boy would be good. It was just yeah. Oh, all the food. Farmer Boy, I could That's see I being a series because it's all episodic, and you just you just make that into like you could just have him have some new adventure. Yeah. I actually wouldn't mind that adding adding stories to that, especially because there's more stuff beyond Farmer Boy that we know about from his childhood. Um, I would like to. And Almanzo could have less hair than. What's that? Oh, the onset oh, cook. Yeah. yeah, that's what I want to do. I just want to make all those pies and the mashed potatoes and roast chickens and gingerbread and just so much dessert for breakfast. That was what I took away from that that movie. All as the a carbs, kid. yeah. Just like I'll just make more carbs. So that was the mood. That's the book that I remember reading. The first book I remember reading, uh-huh. and because the food, right? Well. It's just, I don't, well, no, I don't know. I don't know if that's why I remember, but I do remember being a kid and saying to my mom, he gets to eat apple pie for breakfast. Why don't we mm-hmm. get to eat apple pie for breakfast? And she said something kid like, logic. said something like, well, he got up before dawn and milked cows and did all kinds Worked of chores and, and some kind of yeah. mom nonsense. And I didn't get to eat apple pie for breakfast <laughs> except the day after Thanksgiving. <sighs> but the day after yeah. Thanksgiving, man, when you can eat pie for breakfast does get better than that. It's funny, but the day after Thanksgiving, I feel like we are really, we have completely derailed, but this is just the nature of these live episodes. <laughs> the funny thing about the day after Thanksgiving is you eat like exactly the same meal and probably even more than you ate the day before. Cause right, you're eating pie for breakfast and then you make yourself lunch and it's exactly the same plate of food you made yourself the day before that you spent all day cooking. Unless right? you've you like that, refurbished you it into soup. True. Well, I usually make enchiladas out of my leftover turkey. Do you see what Mel- <laughs> Melanie just said? We're back to pie, which is yep. <laughs> extremely accurate. Just a microcosm of our friendship. <laughs> no, it's so true. <laughs> so, there are. Yeah. Yeah. Just multiple references to pie and ranking things. So anyway, mm. this is. We do need to have a ranking before we leave. <laughs> okay, what do you want to rank? I don't know. Maybe we should take a. Maybe we should rank audience members. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> should we? Uh, we will have to tell people. Tell us how many people have eaten um, key lime pies Lisa, since last time. Lisa Looney spelled. She spelled lemon meringue pie wrong. <laughs> there. 
Amber says she has it, which makes her the worst Floridian. Yeah, is, is it like once a week you have to eat key lime pie to keep your Florida card? That's right. Do you guys have cards in Florida that prove that you're, oh, I guess they're called a driver's license, <laughs> ID. She says she's never had it before. Yeah, no, you actually probably do need to get your card. Yeah, that's a, that's a that. different, that's a different, yeah, con- like, that's a different conversation. Have you had it in the last month? Okay, I can get, I can understand not having had pie, a very particular kind of pie in the last month when it hasn't been warm out. Amber, where are you? Are, can we see you on here? No, I don't. I think she 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 turned her video off because she doesn't want to be publicly shamed nope. and have us to see her face be publicly shamed. All right, come on, guys, be on our live podcasts, and we will publicly shame you yeah. for not eating pie. <clears throat> Taking lemon meringue to Easter. Mm-hmm. Jesse says one of the first times I talked to either one of you at the Cersei conference, I remember being asked if I preferred pie. <laughs> that was two years ago, and not much has changed. Yeah, I mean, if you if you meet us, you are probably going to get asked to rank something or about a preference. It's, it's just, true. I don't, yep. we can't get very far from our natures. <laughs> That's true. Mary Jo has been to um, events where we cooked. So maybe we should have Mary Jo rank the food that we made. Yeah, we are going to cook for you guys at the Close Reads Mountain Retreat if you're coming. That's true. So, oh my, Krista yeah. says that the pie at the last conference had the name Kern on it. I still don't know why that was the case. Still did not was not aware that was going to happen and don't understand it. <clears throat> it. All right. I feel like I feel like right we have derailed enough that we need to go now. Vastly overestimated our interest to other Jim- human beings. <laughs> Jimothy. <laughs> Let's rank all the kerns. That's what we're gonna yeah, do. I'm fine with that. So. I'll sit. I'll sit. We. Are, my wife's number one. There you go. And my mom. Is, and my mom is number very, two. Very. Okay. All right. Everybody else is number three. Just a big tie. Yeah. I feel like that's actually just accurate beyond my natural biases and and you know loyalties <clears throat> and not being dumb. <laughs> That's right. You're a wise man. All right. You ready? You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay. It's getting late. But only because I feel like this is... I mean, there are still people here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's weird. But, yeah. I feel like we we know we're really getting off the rails if Mary Jo leaves and tells us, I have had enough. This is enough for all y'all. This is... become way too nonsensical we can't leave until the end credits run well at this point the credits have run we should have actually yeah we should have ended the credits and this could have been all of that like when i'm in a marvel movie when it comes in after the credits or it's like the bloopers you want to go get some shawarma (laughs) yeah that moment (laughs) yeah Yeah. in the marvel movies okay so i guess i should ask you final thoughts heidi and, no, I don't have any okay. final thoughts. I'm just thinking, I, at this point, I'm only thinking about pie. Yeah. So. And it's 10.42 p.m. Is it too late to eat pie? Is it too late to make a pie? Probably too late to make a pie. Are you David Carter? I've, has there been a body snatcher? It is never too late to eat pie. Yeah, but I have to go home and make it. and I guess I go to the store. I know. That's true. Okay, yeah. well, since Heidi has... Mary Jo says she thought about leaving 15 minutes ago. Right. See, Tim was the smart one here. So, Tim is gone. 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.